we're back. Monday, May 23rd, 2022. Born the Battle, brought to you by the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs, the podcast that focuses on inspiring veteran stories and puts a highlight on important resources, offices, and benefits for our veterans. I'm your host, Marine Corps veteran Tanner Iskra. However you listen to Born the Battle, be it Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iTunes, iHeartRadio, Facebook, the player inside the blog on blogs.va.gov. Hope you're having a good week outside of podcast land. It is good to be back, but as you can probably tell, I completely lost my voice during my trip out to handle family business. You know, my wife says it's sexy, which which makes me wonder if she even likes my normal voice. Oh, well. couple ratings and two new reviews since we've been out. V. Walburn updated his review. It says five stars. Every episode is a great episode. Well, thank you, Vince. The episode with Navy veteran Ken Harbaugh spoke the truth about all veterans' feeling of service that continues after the time in the military ends. Once service starts, that feeling and passion never ends. Longtime listener, Vince Walburn, U.S. Air Force, 1983 to 2015. Vince, you know, I highly agree. I am fortunate enough to be in this role to showcase other veteran stories, which hopefully shows you that if they can do it, so can you. In addition, with the benefits breakdowns, you know, I get to break down benefits, offices, initiatives, and programs within the VA that hopefully you all can listen to and and explore how those benefits apply to you. Finally, another way I have a service-oriented thing in my life is that I have an intern team for this podcast. And one of my favorite things is watching them come into the program, learn something and move on and then succeed in their professional futures. So I completely identify with what you're saying, Vince. Appreciate you writing in. Next one is from Trey TLH says five stars worth the listen. Excellent show with outstanding guests, helpful and timely information. Trey, I appreciate that vote of confidence and for putting that out there. If you haven't yet, please consider writing a review for Born the Battle on Apple Podcasts. Doing so does help us climb higher in the charts due to Apple's algorithm, giving more veterans a better opportunity to discover Born the Battle, listen to the testimonies of their fellow veterans, our benefits breakdown episodes, and hear what's in our news releases. It's also the best way for me to communicate with you, much like you just read, or more, much like you just heard, I respond to every review. No news releases this week. Well, there was a joint statement from the Secretaries of Housing and Urban Development, Agriculture, Treasury, and our own VA Secretary, Dennis McDonough, on the continued efforts to connect homeowners to pandemic relief. If you Google Homeowners Assistance Fund and make your way to the treasury.gov site about it, and again, the statement will be linked in the show notes at the bottom of this episode's blog and on blogs.va.gov. But if you make your way to the treasury.gov site, you can learn about how the American Rescue Plan is providing over $9.9 billion to provide relief for vulnerable homeowners to include VA home loans. They also have a FAQ website about the Homeowner Assistance Fund linked within the statement. All right, this week's guest is a retired Army Major General who retired after over 35 years of service and whose last command was as the Director of the U.S. Army Forces Command at Fort Bragg. He currently is the senior director of the Rutgers UBHC National Call Center and the director for Vets for Warriors. Him and his wife are champions of military and civilian efforts to promote mental health and suicide prevention awareness and to eliminate the stigma surrounding mental health care. 
to honor the memory of their sons, Second Lieutenant Jeff Graham, who was killed by an IED in Iraq in February of 2004, and their son Kevin, a senior Army ROTC cadet who died by suicide in June of 2003 while studying to be an Army doctor at the University of Kentucky. Our guest and his wife have established numerous funds, studies, partnerships, and has spoken across the country in both their son's honor. He is Major General Mark Graham. Enjoy. Sir, where are you originally from? So I was born in St. Louis, Missouri, and uh, uh, grew up, when I was about six years old, we moved to Illinois, and I grew up in a place called Fairview Heights, Illinois, and went to high school in Belleville East, high school in Belleville, Illinois. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. So Midwest, Midwest kid. Midwest kid, mate, huge St. Louis Cardinals fan. Oh, man, I'm sorry to hear that. Um, <laughs> I mean, this is coming from a Mariners fan. I, you know, it's, 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 it's a rough existence uh, out here. Growing up as a Mariners fan, you know, in the 90s, it was great because we had Ken Griffey Jr. and we had um, uh, some success, but never that, that World Series. You know, I can't believe that team that had Ken Griffey and uh, Randy Johnson and Edgar Martinez, they, they just never put it together to, to get yeah. one in. It just shows you how tough it is. Yeah, no kidding. No kidding. It's it takes so tough. <laughs> well, Major General Mark Graham, sir, uh, welcome. Glad you're here. Um, doing my research, you know, you've you have a, a very unique and, and, and sobering story, and and I thank you for coming on here on Born the Battle for coming to tell it. Uh, thanks, Tanner. I'm glad, glad to be here. Yeah. Um, now, I think you referred to us by a firm. Um, that helps others learn about stories that will be on uh, PBS's Memorial Day concert, correct? Correct. Right. Yeah, it's the 29th of May at uh, eight o'clock. Got yeah. you. Now, is your story going? Is the story that we're about? Is that your story going to be featured on there? It is. Got you. Very good. Very good. Well, sir, the, the first question we always ask here on Born in the Battle um, is, and and it goes back way back to when did you know that military service was going to be the next step in your life? You know, I, I was an ROTC guy uh, when I joined the Army. So I went in through ROTC. I went to school at Murray State University in Murray, Kentucky. It was cheaper to go out of state to school in Kentucky than in state in Illinois when I was a kid. Interesting. Uh, that usually doesn't happen. Yeah, that's a, like a regional agreement they have. I think they've ended that. But, you know, my mom, my dad died when I was 11 years old. So it was my mom and I. Um, so, you know, things were tight. So we, I tried to find a place I could go to school. And they brought a bunch of us down there from our high school. And uh, I liked it. And uh, so I went to school in Murray. And while I was in high school, I was in leadership positions in student government and other positions at, in high school. And um, I, I, I saw something about RO, Army ROTC and I didn't know anything about it. And, and so I went and asked my high school gu guidance counselor about it. And he, he looked at me and said, Mark, why would you want to do that? <laughs> really? Yeah. Uh, I mean, this is, you know, this is in the late 70s. So, so, you know, why do you want to do that? So I said, you know, I said, I'm just interested in the leadership aspect of the military. Um, didn't really have any family that was a military. I had an uncle that was in Vietnam, but he never talked about it. So I didn't know much about it. Sure. Another uncle who had been in the uh, uh, in the Air Force, and he never really talked about it uh, at all either. So um, I didn't really have any connection. I just, I, I like the leadership aspect and want to know more about it. So I joined ROTC and um, started doing it through ROTC. Interesting. It's it, To me, it's interesting that, Back then, you know, of course, post Vietnam, it was almost like, you know, why, why the military? Why the military? Yeah. It's very yeah. interesting. Um, well, yeah. well, sir, you served 35 years in numerous positions. Uh, it looks like you were an ar artillery officer uh, 
for most of your career. I, I didn't see it in your bio. Uh, you know, you retired in 2012. I assumed you deployed to either OIF or OEF at some point. I, de- I deployed to the Gulf War. Um, I was in Iraq in a different capacity. I never deployed with a, uh, a unit for a long period of time there. I was in different positions supporting different things. And uh, also when I was at, uh, in San Antonio at Fifth Army, Army North, uh, Hurricane Katrina, uh, so I supported. Plus, I was the Forces Command G three five seven, and we were responsible for uh, which units were going to theater and which you know when they go and what gotcha. their missions were and all that. So I was involved in it imminently. So I, I visited, but I never for a short period, but I never was deployed with a unit in uh, in combat over there. Of course, if you're over there, it's combat. Absolutely, uh, tracking all that. But I, I did, yeah, like you like you quickly mentioned there, I did re- see that you know. Uh, I was deployed to Iraq, but while I was deployed to Iraq, you were you were supporting uh, Katrina and Rita. Yeah. The same. <laughs> yeah, I was I was actually in Iraq when all that happened. My uh, my captain, uh, he was from New Orleans, oh. and and so he would show you he would show me the Google map before and after. He goes, "Yep, there was my house, and now it's not there." And he didn't even know where his family was for a couple of days. Yeah, it was it was really a tragic event. I mean, really, really sad. I was down there for about five months. For about five months. Yeah. Wow. Um, when I was down there, then I came back for Hurricane Rita. Then I went back down, went back down again. Gotcha. Yeah. Everyone remembers Katrina. Not many people know that. Remember that fact that Rita came in right afterwards. Yeah. Yeah. It was yes. right behind. Um, another unique thing I saw that in your interview, sir, uh, is that you were the first active duty colonel to command a National Guard Brigade. How did how did that come about? The Army started a program. Um, and uh, the chief of staff of the army was contacted by the adjutant general from the state of California and uh, said he wanted, uh, would like to know if there's an opportunity for a, a field artillery colonel to command the uh, division artillery in the 40th division artillery based in uh, Los Alamitos, California, right there by LA. Interesting. Uh, and, uh, and the chief of staff of the army said, absolutely, let's do that. Cause he wanted it. He was, it was general Reimer and he wanted to continue to work closer, getting the army, uh, the national guard and the active army connected. So, he thought this would be a great way to, to try that. So um, I got a phone call one day and said, uh, you're going to command a brigade. It's going to be in the California National Guard. So, okay. I mean, if you're going to, you know, command any brigade, California is not a bad place to do it in. It was. And we uh, we loved it out there. I learned a ton. Sadly, my command sergeant major, uh, when I was there, just passed away. And uh, I actually oh was in California last week or two weeks ago. I was in California and did the eulogy. Uh, at his funeral, but uh, Command Sergeant Major Gary Andrews is a great American. Sorry to hear about that, sir. Um, wow. Uh, well, you had a very, uh, very varied career, I guess. I, I, while you were in, can you either give me a best friend or or your greatest mentor? You know, that'd be, I'm always cautious to do that because if I do that, I, I you know, I leave someone out or something else. I, I had a lot of, uh, wonderful friends and still have them in the guard. I mean, I, I go golfing annually with a bunch of army friends and uh, stay connected with many others in a lot of ways. And I, I've had some wonderful uh, mentors and, and leaders uh, throughout the years. And so I'm, I, I'm always hesitant to name one. Because <laughs> yeah. I, I get that, but I'm going to hold you to it. If you had to name one uh, or, or more than an experience, one. that was a, a great teaching lesson for you. Yeah. Um, I think, I think if I named, uh, well, I can't, I mean, I just, there were so many, I mean, you know, from yeah, there, there were several and they know who they are. If they hear this and watch, they, they know who they are, that they, uh, they help guide me and 
would ask me questions and gotcha. what do you want to do next? What are your goals? And, and those the right questions to ask. Understood, sir. Uh, what what about uh, maybe a, if, if not a person, maybe what would be the greatest lesson that maybe someone taught you that you still carry with you today? To listen. To listen. You know, a lot of times you walk down the hall and you say to a soldier to, or in the civilian community even, you know, how are you doing? And some will say, okay, or good. Uh, but do more than that. Just say, how are you doing? And when they respond, say, really, tell me more. How's your family? How's it going? And t- stop and talk to them and just don't pass by the hall with people. So I, I tried to do that. I learned that uh, at a pretty early time in my Army career, and I, and I tried to live by that. Um, so just instead of the old, just the old fashioned, how you doing? People are typically going to say to a senior leader, uh, good, sir, great, sir, fine, sir, everything's OK, sir. OK, sir, you know, hua or something. Uh, but I was uh, someone talked to me one time before and said that was their th- thought was, you know, instead of just doing that, stop and listen and uh, really ask and find out. And I thought that was a, a great bit of advice early on. Was there ever a time where that advice uh, came in handy? It did. I remember when I was at Fort Carson, we were struggling with a lot of suicides and homicides and Hmm. a lot of post-traumatic stress and uh, mental health challenges with all the deployments, um, family stress. Um, And I walked into the, uh, I walked into the, uh, one of the units where we did post-traumatic stress. Um, We just started uh, these units and I walked in, there was a, an NCO standing there and I, uh, and I walked in and I said, well, I said, how you doing? It was, I think a staff sergeant. I said, how you doing staff sergeant? So-and-so. And I said his name and he said, you know, sir, not very well. And I said, well, tell me what's going on. He goes, well, I'm, I'm, I'm here uh, because something's not right. He goes, I'm a good non-commissioned officer. I do my job. I know what I'm doing. I take care of my soldiers. He said, but something's not right. My wife keeps telling me and he goes, so I thought I'd, I'd come in and get some help. So he was there to, uh, to be looked, screened for post-traumatic stress and uh, see what's going on mental health wise. And I said, well, you're in the right place. I'm glad you're here. And I appreciate you coming forward because other people will, will know that and you'll help a lot of other people too. Very good. Very good. What was the uh, outcome of that? Did you follow up on that? Anil? Uh, outcome was he ended up going back. He ended up getting promoted and, uh, and did well. Outstanding. Outstanding. Well, sir, the, the reason I said your story is sobering um, during your career uh, you and your wife, uh, endured losing not one, but two sons. Uh, do you mind sharing the story of who they were? Um, sure. uh, and as both were either in or they were about to go in, is that, is that right? Correct. Yeah. In, uh, I was stationed in, uh, South Korea. Carol was with me, uh, Melanie, our daughter, who's the youngest and our oldest son, Jeff, and our middle son, Kevin, were all three at the university of Kentucky. Um, living in the same apartment, Jeff. Um, and in May of 2003, uh, Carol and I flew back to Kentucky as I commissioned Jeff uh, as a second lieutenant in the army. Um, and he graduated with an engineering, engineering degree from university of Kentucky. And so we were supposed to come back from Korea in June. So 30 days later, we we're supposed to come back. We got there for the May for this graduation and for the commissioning ceremony I hugged Kevin. He was solid as a rock. Uh, we made comments to Kevin. Kevin, you know, you you look great. How are you doing? Oh, good, Dad. Good. You know, he said I'm working out twice a day. Uh, I said, Oh, wow. You know, and he was getting ready to go to uh, what they call Warrior Forge. It's where ROTC between your junior senior year you go to uh, Fort Lewis, Washington. Oh, okay, yeah. 
you go through what they we used to call advanced camp. Now it's Warrior Forge. I think they might have changed the name. So Kevin was preparing to go there. Uh, so Kevin and Melanie were still living in the same apartment. Jeff had moved out because he was at Fort Knox, Kentucky, studying to be uh, training to be getting ready to train to be an armor officer um, on active duty. Um, and Jeffrey called us. Um, it was late at night in Korea when Jeffrey called us and uh, told us Kevin had uh, killed himself. Um, our daughter Melanie found Kevin, uh, and they were literally in the same apartment rooms next to each other. And uh, our world as we know it stopped at that moment and changed, and it'll never be the same. Our son Kevin was struggling with depression. We knew he had depression. We knew Kevin was sad. We didn't know you could die from being too sad. In 2003, we didn't. We just didn't know a lot about mental health no. and depression and the uh, and and the seriousness of it. And it is really an illness and not just a sad feeling. And uh, we we I'm sure we did some wrong things. We didn't. You know, we didn't. We never told Kevin to suck it up. But I think sometimes he, you know, he said, you know, Dad, you know, the Army Creed, you know, and everything, and the never give up piece. So Kevin didn't want to tell anyone. So he, we think he did not want to. T- uh, right down that he was on medications when he went for that training. So a week before he was supposed to uh, go to Fort Lewis for that training, he uh, took his own life. Um, and Carol and Melanie, I'll, I mean, we'll never be, you know, happy is never going to be the same. Joy is never going to be the same. We do have joy in our lives now. Melanie and uh, Mary Joe Quinn, it's Melanie Graham Quinn now. She married um, our now son-in-law, Joe Quinn. Uh, they have three children. So with three grandkids, uh, they are our joy. Uh, but our life changed diff- significantly and will never uh, be the same because of that. Um, yes, sir. And then, so Jeffrey was commissioned um, in May. He then went to uh, Fort Knox, Kentucky. The army was gracious and told Jeffrey he did not have to deploy to Iraq. He was scheduled to go to Fort Riley, Kansas with the big red one and deploy. His brigade was already deployed to Iraq. He was supposed to join them in Iraq. Uh, and the army senior leaders of the army said he didn't have to do that. He could stay at Fort Knox. They would, you know, have him do some other job there because uh, they understood the tragedy our family had gone through. Uh, but Jeffrey and I talked, we were on a walk one day. We didn't do a lot of walking together. We'd run once in a while. We never walked. And he stopped me during a walk uh, after Kevin died and said, dad, you know, I have to go. Right. And I, uh, I, I looked at him and I never seen my son look at me like that, you know? And I, and I said, you know, Jeff, I don't want you to go. Uh, you know, we need you here. And uh, mom and Melanie and I, we need you. And he said, dad, my soldiers are waiting on me. You know, they, they need their leader. I'm, I need to go. They need me. And I said, you don't have any soldiers yet. You haven't deployed yet. And he looked at me with, with like, in a way he never has and said, dad, you understand and know I've got to go. And as a father, I didn't want my son to go to deploy. Um, but as a soldier, I understood why he he felt he needed to go. Um, and so he did. We talked to him almost every night. Uh, Jeff would call and we'd talk to him and his mom, you know, Carol would talk to him about other mom things. And I would talk to him about army things. He would ask me questions. And so we would talk almost every night, but the last night, the night before he was supposed to p- deploy to Iraq, he called in and he quickly said, Hey, someone's at the door. Can I, uh, can I call you back? And so Carol and I said, sure. So two, two hours or so went by and it was getting late. So we went to bed and we were sad. You know, we thought, shoot, he's not going to call. This was last night. And so we were sad about that. But um, so then about 11 o'clock at night, he called, he called back and he was crying. And Jeffrey 
you know, he, he was he didn't cry a lot. I mean, I, I, I'm more emotional. I cry. I mean, I'm more emotional like that. But Jeffrey wasn't and he was crying. And he he said a soldier came to his door. And to this day, we don't know whatever happened with the soldier. But to this day, he said a soldier came to his door and said, are you the lieutenant whose brother killed himself? And Jeff said, yeah, I am. And he said, can I talk to you? And so he came into the apartment and he and Jeff talked and, and uh, he said his father had killed himself and he, he was having those same thoughts. So Jeff talked to him and Jeff said to him, don't be like my brother. Don't take your own life. You know, you know, you're important to people, you know, we need you and uh, please stay. And uh, as far as we know, he, he, he stayed, he, he didn't do anything. Um, and Jeff said, you know, dad, and it took Carol and I, before Kevin died, I would have said something very different to that guy. You know, let's go play basketball. Let's get a beer. Let's go shoot some hoops. Let's play a video game. But he goes, after Kevin, after Kevin's death, he said, that's when he said, you know, don't do like my brother, Let, you know, get some, you know, get help. Let's, you know, get some help. There's, there's help out there, you know, don't, you know. And so he said different things. And then before we hung up, he said, you know, he told Carol first, he talked to Carol first and said, Mom, I want I want you to promise me that, that you and Dad will keep doing what you're doing, going out and speaking about mental health and there's you know and everything. And she said, Of course I promise. And she he asked me the same thing to promise doing that. And he said, There are a lot of Kevins out there. And uh and and I, I want you to keep doing what you're doing. So we of course said, you know, absolutely. So yeah. one of the reasons we're here with you today. Wow. And then our daughter Melanie, you know, it's, you know, it's been tough. It's her two brothers, she's lost her two older brothers. So, uh, uh, yeah, because Mel- Melanie's, <laughs> Melanie's a nurse practitioner now in uh, in New York City. Jeff ended up deploying, correct? He did. He deployed. He was there about three months when Jeff was killed by a roadside bomb. It was detonated by a cell phone. He was on a foot patrol. He was an armor officer, uh, but he was a platoon leader, and he was on a foot patrol. And they were, they were coming across a bridge. Someone obviously was observing them, and. Uh, dialed a cell phone and detonated it by cell phone. He and a, a fellow soldier specialist, Roger Ling from New York, uh, were both killed and his interpreter and a, uh, a local police officer. All right. Keep Sir, that's losing two sons in the, <clears throat> losing two sons in the span of two years. Uh, and, I, I can't even imagine. Uh, and you know, Tanner, it was June of 2003 and February of 2004. It was literally almost seven and a half months. Uh, oh they both gosh. died within seven and a half months. And, um, so, uh, it was, you know, but, but, but I, you know, you know, I, people always say, how do you, I, you know, how do you get through this? And I said, well, um, I can't always answer that question, but you know, faith, family, and friends are, are, are what kept us going. And, uh, hard, but, you know, people being around us and to include our army family and our military family. Yeah, that was exactly going to be my next question. I mean, you were able to continue your own service until 2012. And and, and I was going to ask you that, like, who and what helped you keep in, stay in uniform? And, and, and I was simply- done. I mean, I was done after Kevin, after Kevin uh, died, I, uh, I was done then. I mean, we were at Carol's mom's house in Kentucky and, uh, you know, I was, looking, I was thinking about what I was going to do next. And, uh, Melanie was ready for me to get out of the army too. She didn't know. And, and, uh, she was worried about Jeffrey of course too. And, um, and then, uh, the commanding general of Fort Sill called me and I was supposed to go back to, I was on my way back from Korea to go back to be the chief of staff of Fort Sill, Oklahoma, that center at the field artillery center. And, um, he called me and, and said, hey, Mark, I still want you to come be the chief of staff. 
And I said, sir, I'm not sure how good I'm going to be. I mean, I don't, I don't know how much I can give here uh, anymore. And he goes, take all the time you need. Uh, but I want you to I want you to come out and be the chief of staff when you're ready. Um, so him, him allowing me that space and that time uh, meant all the world. Uh, it was John Mike Maples. Mike Maples. Maples. Um, uh, it was uh, he and his wife Lynn were great. And Carol came, you know, later. I went out first and started working again. And I dove into work. Um, I just dove into work. And Carol, it was like a month later before Carol came out. But you know him. You know he said, look, you know you're going to live right next to us. You know just whenever you're ready, come. So I did, I, you know, I did it later. And then Carol, about a month after I got out there, came out and, and joined me. And, and then of course, um, General Dave Valcourt was the commanding general Fort Sill, who's the one who told me that Jeffrey had died and was killed in Iraq. Um, and as he and I walked from the headquarters over to our quarters, which was, you know, a couple blocks away from our headquarters, uh, we stopped while we were walking to tell Carol, because Carol didn't know yet. He told me and we were going to tell Carol and, and we stopped and I looked at him, I said, sir, I'm done. I'm, I'm out of gas here. And so I, I'm finished. And he looked at me and said, don't say that yet. Don't make that decision yet. Just wait. Just please don't make the decision yet. So um, at that point, I was, you know, in a fog anyway. So I just, and he didn't want you to make a decision out of pure emotion. Right. And so I, I didn't do make any de- decision at that point. So we went and told Carol and of course, you know, that was horrible too. And then, uh, uh, so then I, uh, I just, I decided to, at that point I decided to stay and I didn't know how long I was going to stay, but I was, I was getting ready to leave and retire the army. I mean, I was, I was working resumes and all that stuff. I was getting ready to go. Yeah. Yeah. And that was, that was 2004, right? 2004. Right. Yeah. So what, I mean, you, you stayed till 2012. What, what made you still keep going? Um, well, cause it sounds like you were, you were, and it sounds like an 04, that was it. Yeah, that was it. I, I after Carol, shortly after Carol got there, um, or shortly after Jeffrey died, we come back from the funeral. Um, he's buried next to his brother in, in Frankfort, Kentucky, where Carol's hometown. And we got back to our quarters that night. So the next morning after we got back to Fort Sill, I came downstairs. Carol was already downstairs reading a devotional that she read uh, called streams in the desert and from that devotional uh she was crying and she said read this and i read i read this devotional and uh, and it's in the it's in the book you know, the invisible front and everything and uh, from that devotional it it just it just impacted me like nothing before i mean it was you know, like it spoke to me and it said you know you know do not fold your arms there's more to you know in in paraphrasing it's hey, there's more to do here do not fold your arms and suffer in your grief you know get out there and do you know keep going so i decided okay you know maybe there is a reason uh, to stay in the army here i mean there not only can i help army through the army but i probably can help other people because i understand the loss people are going through and i mean we were all losing soldiers and yeah. in theater and to suicide so sadly you know in a way many others could not i Carol and I could really relate to a lot of what's going on. And I thought, well, you know, maybe I can help even change some things the way we do some things in the, in the army or something. So I decided to stay. I uh, got, you know, got selected for general officer. And then from there, I just went to various assignments and just seemed like every assignment I went to was just the right one at the right time. Uh, how, how so? In what ways? 
Uh, you know, like I went, I was, so I was at Fort Sill for a while as the uh, assistant commandant of the Field Artillery Center. Um, and as the chief, but before that, I was a chief, as I was a chief of staff, uh, you're able to make some decisions and some changes. And um, I saw some things that I thought we could change at Fort Sill. And uh, we were able to, to make some changes like, you know, the mental health clinic is separate from the hospital. Why, why, are, we, why are we making it separate? Well, there were, there were logical reasons for that. They didn't need an x-ray machine. You don't have to do blood work there. Sure. Um, so for fiscal reasons and stuff, but the perception and the stigma that's out there, the perception was you're going to a clinic separate from the hospital. So, you know, so, you can almost so they see were, it wasn't being connected as like a medical. Right. Yeah. Separate. So now, you know, most places I think have connected those. And so when I got to Fort Carson, they were already connected. You know, they were already, it was already that part. It was already in the hospital. So that was good to hear. So, um, so I learned something there. I went to Fort uh, Sam Houston and then I, uh, was deployed uh, uh, to Katrina, literally the, my welcome ceremony, the day of my welcome cer- ceremony, uh, you know, I uh, I got told uh, Lieutenant General Bob Clark, Robert Clark was the commanding general at the time and called me over and said, Mark, you're going to New Orleans. Uh, and I said, when? He goes, well, maybe not tonight, but if not tomorrow morning uh, to help General Henry at, at Kat- in Katrina with everything going on down there. So I went down there and there was a lot of, a lot of sadness and a lot of things going on down there. So I was able to put a lot of what I learned in the army in place down there as far as operationally and the evacuation and then uh, the emotional piece too, that so many were going through, not only the people that were going through it, but the people that were working down there were struggling, seeing what they're seeing and, and helping others. It was hard on the everyone down there, but tough on people working too. And we sometimes, you know, don't realize it's emotionally tough on, on a lot of the first responders and many of the people down oh, yeah. there volunteering. Uh, and then I went back to, uh, and then went back and we, uh, we, we were a part of army North. So we were starting coordinating elements around the country to, to help coordinate for, uh, you know, any kind of homeland defense event and disasters again. So that was powerful work. And then I went to Fort Carson and, uh, at Fort Carson, I was, a I was the, uh, commanding general of division army, first army division West, yeah. uh, which had six mobilization sites around the country for all the national guard reserve units that were mobilizing to deploy to the theater. In Iraq gotcha. and Afghanistan, so that was a, a powerful mission again. And then, uh, on top of that, I was the uh, senior commander at Fort Carson, Colorado, which had all the units that were coming and going, deploying from Iraq and Afghanistan. And as a senior commander, I was involved in all those units deployments and memorial services, and so I was able to be with families there and and help. I think make some changes there to to make a difference and and. In, in the tone and the and just the atmosphere and that you know it's a sign of straight not wingers to come forward and get help you know it's uh it's okay to get up we need you to get up this is a real thing mental health is serious it's an illness post-traumatic stress depression is is real and uh, there's help out there so get help it's it's okay to do that so uh, i wanted to create an environment to where soldiers and ncos officers everyone felt it was okay from top to bottom bottom to top it was okay to get help um it- it so sounds then, like you were able to fuel your own grief into being being there for others, being able to support yeah, others. Yeah, that's yeah, well put. I mean, I I I think I think so. I hope so. I, you know, the the goal was always to help one person with anything you do. Just if you can help just one person, yeah. uh, then you're making a difference. Was it was it cathartic for you to build a, to to fuel your own emotions and to, and to helping others? You know it. It was cathartic, I guess, in a way, but it was also emotionally really hard uh, and still is. I mean, 
Uh, Carol and I were speaking more then. I was speaking a lot then. And when I got, when I retired, I was speaking, we were speaking a lot. And we, uh, we've slowed, we, we slowed that down quite a bit. I mean, you know, I'm an old guy now. So, you know, <laughs> uh, I, uh, I guess folks, you know, they went, uh, but it, you know, it, it's, it's, it's emotionally hard. You know, I've, uh, three grandkids, you know, I, you know, my uh, daughter and son-in-law, you know, we love spending time with them and, uh, three grandkids, you know, that's just joy beyond words in a different way. Uh, but happy and joy is different now than it was before we lost yeah. our sons. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. I can only imagine how much it takes out of you to, to, to speak about it. And that's why I really appreciate the, appreciate the fact that you're, you're doing yeah. it today with me. But again, I, you know, I, we do, you know, Carol and I both do this for, we can help one person, one family. It's worth it. I mean, yeah. it's, it's, it's worth the, what we do. So we, uh, and Jeffrey, you know, Jeffrey asked us, he asked us to promise to keep doing what we do. So, yeah. I mean, we'll always keep doing this. It's just, you know, maybe not as much as we were before, but we will always keep doing this. Tracking, tracking. Um, so, sir, you got out in, uh, in 2012. What was the first thing Mark did on the first day of his retirement? Nothing. I think I, <laughs> I think, I think nothing, but I think, I think I went golfing. Okay. We rented up. We rented up uh, a house uh, outside of Fort Bragg, North Carolina, because I had a I had a boss call me when I was as I was getting ready to retire. I had a boss call me that knew I was getting ready to retire because he'd gotten the retirement invitation for the ceremony, and he uh, he said something to me I'll never forget. He said, uh, "Mark, do not rush to unhappiness." And I said, "What?" And he said, "Take your time. Don't don't just rush into something fast. Just you know." Take your time. Now, you know, that that sounds easy to do, but yeah. when you've been working for 35 years, you know, it's like, what do you mean not have a job for something? So that was hard. But Carol and I were speaking, so that kept us going. You know, we kept going because we were speaking. So we were, you know, it's not like we just stopped. We were doing some speaking. So I, I like to play golf. So we were, I was playing some golf more than I've been able to play before. And and uh, um, and then speaking. And then I, uh, and then I got a call from, we were actually, we were supposed to speak in New York City. Mm. And uh, somebody called me uh, and said, I want to talk to you about running a program. Uh, while you're up here, can you come over to New Jersey and, and uh, meet with me? And so Carol and I and I and Carol went with me. So we went over and 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 and, and talked about Vets for Warriors at the time. It was pretty new. Yeah. That was in 2000, sometime in 2012, probably the fall of 2012. Uh, maybe not even that late. Yeah, sometime. This was literally the day. So I, 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 um, so I, we talked and it was, you know, it didn't include families and it was just getting going. So I said, you know, I don't, I'm not sure if it's a fit for me yet. And he said, okay. So um, we you know, did some speaking and then I, uh, I was asked uh, to do some consulting uh, for a small veteran nonprofit in New York. Uh, and I did that um, for about nine or 10 months. And literally the day after the consulting agreement ended, I got a call from the same guy from, in New Jersey from the Rutgers University of Behavioral Healthcare, where Vets for Warriors is, uh, is housed. And he said- Now, what, hey, what is Vets for Warriors? So Vets for Warriors is a 24-hour confidential peer support network. So anyone that's currently serving active National Guard reservists, uh, if you're a veteran uh, or family member, veteran meaning if you've ever worn the uniform of our nation's military, you can call or a family member can call 24 hours a day nationwide or internationally and a, a veteran answers the phone live within 30 seconds. And it's wow. a train, it's a trained peer support specialist. So we hire veterans and, and they get training to do this work. So it's a win-win. We hire veterans to help other veterans. It's a nonprofit through the Rutgers university. 
okay. uh, foundation. So if you go on GuideStar or Charity Navigator, you won't find us because we don't have our separate EIN number to be a uh, charity, but we're a 501c3 through that, uh, wow. through the foundation. So uh, he called me and said, you know, Mark, you know, I'd like you to run, you know, run Vest Warriors, apply for this, um, if you would. And I said, well, what is it doing? He said, you know, DOD's picked it up. It's going to include families. So I said, okay, I'm interested. So I, uh, I flew up and interviewed and, and uh, took the job. So then I moved up to North, to New Jersey from North Carolina uh, in an apartment for a year. And then we eventually moved out of the rental house and Carol moved up with me. And we've been up here eight and a half. I've been up here eight and a half years. She's been up here with me, you know, for a lot of that. But, you know, so, um, so I've been here eight and a half years. Vets Warriors just celebrated 10 year anniversary in December. Yeah. Help thousands of veterans every year. So you contact us. We then call you back. It's confidential. Um, and so you, you, once you call us, we talk, we, we follow up. We talk to you as many times as you want to. We can help connect you to resources around the country. Uh, we try to connect you to community-based resources if possible because it's so important to be connected in your community. Absolutely. Uh, and our goal is wellness, resilience, you know, you know, improve your quality of life and just help you get on track so you can do great, great thrive and do great work. And it's, like uh, we know service members that become, you know, that have served can do. They uh, are great Americans and they can do great things as their families can too. Roger. Um, yeah. And it's also great like, when you talk about community-based care, it's great that the VA now can support that through the Mission Act uh, with, you know, to get community-based care instead of having, you know, depending on the, the yeah. mileage and all that stuff, but you can, and, you know, the scheduling, if it's over, I think it's over three weeks, I'd have to look at the Mission Act, what, what's, if yeah. there's anything changed, but I think it's, if there's, if it's, you're scheduled three weeks out, you can ask for community-based care. So yeah. it's and good. We were, and so DOD uh, switched, you know, they, they uh, decided to go a different direction. So the contract did in 2015. Uh, mm. And so now we, uh, we get some funding from the state of New Jersey, but then uh, they asked us how we wanted to do it. And we said, we want to do public private partnership. Just, just give us the same amount every year. And as yeah. we grow, and help more veterans. We'll go out and seek uh, grant funding from other places, and they love that model because we don't go back every year and ask for more. It's the same amount every year. Yeah. And so uh, that stayed intact, and we've continued to really grow a lot, and we've been able to get a lot of wonderful, generous uh, people donating, you know, corporations and organizations that have continued to help fund us to help us grow. I mean, because most of everything goes to to the to the staff i mean it's all personnel costs because it's yeah. that's what we do i mean it's peers 24 hours a day it takes a lot of a lot of a lot of peers so we get to hire a lot of yeah. veterans and pay the pay the employees and pay the phone bill pretty much what exactly it sounds like. right speaking of phone 855-838-8255 is the number roger that and we will put that uh send me all the links send me the numbers and we'll make sure that goes in your blog on blogs.va.gov oh, great thanks um and, and we'll put that in and there we do so. work, and we do we do tanner we do work with the uh veteran crisis line good uh, because Vets Warriors is not a crisis line; it's a it's a peer support line. So our goal is upstream. We want to help. We want to help uh, everybody before they get to the point of crisis. Gotcha. Um, so crisis is defined by each person differently. So a crisis to you might be different than a crisis to me. But our goal is before you get to that point, wherever it is, call us. Yeah. It might seem like ah, oh, it's, it's really not a big deal, but to you, it's a big deal. So call us. Let's talk. Uh, our peers are great. 75% are combat veterans. We have male male and female veterans. We have veterans from every era, from Vietnam forward. And we have veterans uh, from Army, Navy, Air Force, and Marine Corps. So no matter what service, era, uh, gender, call us and, uh, and and connect to us. And we'll talk. And we work the veterans crisis line because if somebody is uh, calling and they are sui in suicidal crisis, 
We have licensed clinicians that also work with our peers. They work on the cases and help them. Uh, we don't provide clinical care, but then they, they, uh, they you'll guide. Get to, you'll get them to the right spot. And when it calls like that, they get them to the right spot. So we'll warm transfer to the veterans crisis line and the veterans crisis line oftentimes will warm transfer to us. If somebody's uh, not yeah. suicidal crisis, but they, they're struggling and they do want to talk to another veteran, then they'll oftentimes transfer the calls to us. And there's well, no funding. There's no funding exchange there with the, with the VA. That's just a, an agreement. We, we've just been doing it for years with them. No, uh, just a resource agreement. That's, that's in support. That's supporting each other. That's, that's, that's what I love about this community. The entire veteran community is that it, it seems like there's a lot of that. Um, so this is a New Jersey based funded, uh, I guess, calls behavioral call center, but it's not, it, anybody from the nation can call this, correct? Anyone, yeah. We get calls from all 50 States. We get calls from the territories and other countries. I mean, we get calls from South, from South Korea, from Kuwait, we get, Iraq and Afghanistan, Germany, Italy, you know, we've gotten calls from you know, Philippines, probably some any place, you out can, there. any place you can imagine. Probably. Yeah. Wow. Um, I, I, see, this is the first time I've really heard I've, I've personally ever heard of it. How do you, how are you getting the word out of what this is? Well, this helps. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm happy to, I'm happy to, I'm we happy to help tell your story. Um, yeah. I'm happy I, to help tell your story. So, I mean, we, we, uh, we, we send out, we ship out marketing materials to anybody that requests them. You can go on our website and request marketing materials and we'll ship them to you. Uh, so you can share our goals to get the word out as much as we can. We do a lot of social media, um, which has been a big help as we pivoted to the remote work, you know, cause we were initially all in a call center and then we had to go remote for a while. So now we, yeah. um, we, once we pivoted, then we realized, you know, we, we can't go to events and we can't ship materials cause a lot of places were closed. So we, um, we did a lot more social media, digital engagement. So that's working really well, helping, helping people to know about us because the key is we want folks to put vets foyers in your, in your phone, whichever type of phone you have and put the phone number in there. So you can call us anytime you need us at three o'clock in the morning. If you're having a bad night struggling, just call vets foyers and talk to a peer, talk to another veteran. Roger. It's a, it's a shared lived experiences. We use a model that it's called reciprocal peer support. That's been around for a long time. Yeah. Um, the other peer programs in our call center that are New Jersey based programs use, but you know, Vets Foyers, you know, in our top three states are Florida, California, and Texas of course. Uh, for color, but they, they large states, a lot of population, a lot of veterans, but we do have others. Uh, we always kind of rank, you know, we always kind of look at the top 10 states and then we look where are veterans living that we're not getting a lot of calls from. So we can focus some, some of our, some of the marketing efforts in those areas. Cause we want everyone to know. We also have a program called the ambassador program. We started because we realized we can't get everywhere to these events years ago. So we have uh, quite a few people who have signed up to be an ambassador so we can send them materials and they can go to events and they can uh, be at a booth or something and, and talk about vets warriors for us and help us get the word out and they're Roger. volunteers. But I did want to mention our peers are paid employees. So when I say it's a win-win, we hire and train veterans to do this work and they're paid. So we hire veterans to help other veterans. So it's a win-win. In that so you're regard. getting veterans hired to get them. Yeah. It's, you're getting them, you're giving them purpose. That's, that's good stuff. Um, are you familiar with the VA news newsletter or, or vet resources I am. newsletter? You are Roger. Okay, good. Um, that's, that's also a good resource to get the word out. Um, well, sir, you're now the director, uh, like you, like you mentioned for, for Rutgers university behavioral health call center. Um, you also, you know, you have vets for warriors. You're also started up many, many, many initiatives, uh, from what I've seen in both your son's names. Um, what has been the common message one can find in everything that you do now, sir, in your post-military uh, career? Mental health, mental health is an illness. 
and it's real and there's help. Um, we don't want to lose anyone to suicide. You know, we have to eliminate the stigma, um, but we can say eliminate the stigma all day long, but we've got to, one is we've got to keep talking about it and we've got to. What, what, what stigmas do you see, sir, when you talk about stigma? I, I think people are just, even, even veterans, they're hesitant to share. That's why confidentiality in Vets for Warriors is so important uh, because they, people don't want to feel like they're weak. They don't want to feel like, you know, there's something wrong with them and they don't want to share that. They want to keep that private. And so I think that's part of the stigma. I mean, you know, we didn't, you know, we don't talk, we don't talk about it enough. And people say, well, you know, we've been talking about it for years. Yeah. We need to talk about it more. People need to know. I mean, um, so I think it's important that we, that part of your conversation about going to a therapist, seeing a clinician is okay to talk about. That's not something that's like, Oh my gosh, what's wrong with you? Well, if you talk about your, you know, your orthopedist, or you talk about, you know, a doctor, your doctor, or your your priest, or your chaplain, or your preacher, minister, whatever. I mean, no one, no one seems to say anything about that. But if you talk about your therapist or your, I got to see my clinician. People kind of hesitate. They kind of, you can almost see it. I sometimes when I speak, I'll even say, I take high blood pressure medicine. That probably doesn't bother any of you, right? And then most of them nod their head yes. And I said, what if I told you I was on depression medication? I said, would you look at me differently? I said, first off, I'm not going to tell you if I am or not. But what if I am? Does that, does that change your thoughts? And I said, I hope not. And to me, when it doesn't change people's thoughts, if they react to it just like they would if you're on depression medicine or cholesterol, whatever kind of medicine, then we've gotten the stigma in a place where it's normal. I mean, there's still going to be some stigma always, I think. You're never going to eliminate it. Yeah. Because some people just say, oh, come on, suck it up. You know, come on. Well, it's real. Mental illness is real, and it's uh, anywhere from anxiety all the way to the far end of the spectrum. So, you know, please get help. Please reach out. There's help. Talk to talk to a veteran at Vets for Warriors. Let them help you work your way through that because it's hard going to get help. I mean, I went and got help, and it was tough when I was at Fort Sill. Yeah. You know, after I lost the boys, I couldn't sleep. I just couldn't sleep. And our, my daughter, Melanie, and my wife, Carol, said, you know, you need to go get some help here. You, you know, you got to sleep. Um. Melly was in college. Carol was still at home, but uh, and I finally did. But it was hard to do that. It's hard. Nobody's going to say it's easy. It's not easy. It's hard to do that. But once you do, then I think you'll find. And I often tell people, you know, if you go to a clinician and you see a clinician and it's not working right, then find another clinician. Find a different one. But find oh, yeah. Someone, yeah, don't find give someone up. that fits for you. Someone that can actually fit for you and help. And it's it's you know. <laughs> They won't be upset about it. It's got to be a good fit for the clinician and for you. So yes. just switch if you need to, but find the right person. But there is help out there. And we can help connect people to many different resources that can help. I was, uh, that was part of my own mental. I think, like like you said, the hardest part is staring at the building and, and, and taking that first step to go in. You know, after that, it gets it gets a lot easier. Um, my own mental health journey, I, I looked at different clinicians, uh, it was almost like I played a game of survivor. I went to three, then down to two and then down to one. Cause I was like, mm -hmm. you said, I was trying to find that right fit. Um, because you do the same thing in, in your own, you know, in, in physical health. Um, I was, I didn't like my orthopedic surgeon at one point. I didn't like the person that, um, I didn't like a couple of my, uh, physical rehabilitation specialists. Um, and, and it, that made me quit going for three to four years where, my shoulder was being deteriorated. Mm -hmm. um, you don't want to do that with your body or your mind. Right. Um, absolutely. Uh, 
it reminds me of a, of a this this whole conversation reminds me of an episode that we did uh, man probably two years ago now uh aaron quinones uh he was he was a marine veteran he was homeless before the marine corps and homeless after the marine corps and he battled suicide and depression and you know he found a good support network and you know talk about breaking the stigma he from his own research he thought he, he thought you know the best way to get veterans to talk to each other about mental health and suicide prevention, that sort of thing was to develop an app where you basically had your, your squad and only your squad would know right. those that knew you the closest. And, and you can actually pop white or red smoke on this app and it would give you a GPS location to where you are and give you cognitive, uh, right. you know, where are you, what color, what, what day is it that who's the president of the United States? And then, and then your friend, your friends would know exactly where you were. Um, if, if, if you're listening to this now and you're interested in that, it's in the archives, uh, Marine veteran, Aaron Quinones. Um, he's not, that, that app is now being studied by clinicians, by, a, a, a healthcare group to see if they can actually prescribe that for veterans and for other people. Um, so, you know, sir, looking at your entire story, looking at your post, uh, military career, what would you, what successes have you seen in this direction that you've taken in helping others? Well, I think sometimes we, we often talk about how, how many veterans we lose a day to suicide, which is too high. One's too many. We all know that. Yeah. But I think oftentimes, oftentimes we don't step back and, and think, you know, how, how many people did not die by suicide because of the work that everyone's doing out there? And there are a lot of people doing that work. So uh, to, to me, that drives us to continue to do that, continue to do that. And we're still losing too many to suicide every day. We all know that. Yeah. But we've got to keep, we've got to keep working at it. There's so many programs, which can be overwhelming actually a little bit. That's why we oftentimes tell folks, you know, don't, don't, don't even, don't exacerbate your situation by being stressed out about which program, which website, just call, talk to a veteran at Vets Wars. We'll connect you. You know, the app you're talking about, we know about that too. So we help connect people to other organizations. We have a Facebook group now. I mean, we, we're doing those things. We got an app coming out here probably this summer, to help people connect to us easier. We want to make it easier for folks to connect. So I, I think just continuing to make sure that we're getting resources out there and make sure people can get to somebody anytime they need it. Not just when, not just when a, a place is quote open for business, we're always open. Yeah. Um, and I think that's, that's to me, that's the important part is it's whenever you need help. Very good. Very good. Um, sir, it's, it's, it's completely obvious that your that your son's continue to inspire the direction that, that you're making in your own transition. Um, what lasting impact do you want to see Je- Jeff and Kevin make through you? Well, I think they've already made it. I mean, I think they're already making it through me. I mean, I hope, uh, I would hope they'd be proud of their dad and their mom and their sister, but, uh, I'm sure they are because we, uh, we were a really close family and they, uh, they were great young men and, uh, doing wonderful things. And, I mean, Kevin was studying to be an army doctor. Uh, he's pre-med. He wanted to be an army doctor. Uh, Jeffrey, we used, to, we used to call him GI Jeff when he was a kid. I mean, he just, you could always tell he just always wanted to be in the military. He was always a kid playing and wanted to do that. Kevin, Kevin was different. He wanted to, you know, he, he didn't, he wanted to be a doctor and help people in that direction. So they always want to help others. And I think for, for, for Carol and I and Melanie, you know, we, Melanie's a nurse practitioner now. I mean, you know, helping others is kind of in our DNA. And, um, and it was in our, our sons. And I think that's, um, we, we try to carry that on, uh, for others that, uh, 
be open and be there for other people because you don't know what someone's going through. I oftentimes say everyone's going through something, whether themselves personally or someone they know close to them or a family member, a neighbor or a colleague, everyone's going through something. So we always need to be aware that when you see people walking around smiling all the time, they might be smiling on the outside, but they might be hurting on the inside for some reason. So that's why when you stop and say, how you doing? Stop and say, how you doing? And talk to them. Yeah. Uh, sir, what's one thing that you learned during your time in the military? If you had to pick one thing, there's, I'm sure there's many things, but what's one thing that you learned during your time in the military that you apply to what you do today? Well, other than listen um, to people, um, I, I, I think it's, I think it's trust, trust people, you know, trust and confidence in people and, and their, and who they are and, and, and their work. I mean, um, that's one thing about us at Vets for Warriors, people have to trust and have confidence in the work we do to call us, you know, and sometimes that's hard. It It might take two or three calls before they build that trust up, but, but they have to have trust and confidence in the work we do to, um, for it to be effective for, to help them. So I, I think trust and confidence is always important. Uh, and we always, want people to trust us and have confidence in what we're doing. So I think trust and confidence are, are, are two keys for me. Very good. Very good, sir. Um, well, sir, is there anything that I may have missed or haven't asked during this entire conversation that, um, you know, you, you think about the people that are listening to this veterans, VA employees. Um, is there anything that, again, is there anything I may have missed or haven't asked that you'd like to share? Well, for, first I just like, everyone the listening or uh, to know that uh, thank you for all you have done and continue to do for our nation. Uh, and there's help out there. If you're struggling, please don't struggle alone or in silence, reach out vets for warriors or some other organization, reach out to a family member or a friend, but, but please, please get some help and support. Don't, don't go through this alone. It's tough enough, but doing it alone uh, is, is even worse and tougher. So, I would ask you to, to just reach out and get help. Um, it's a sign of strength, not weakness, to reach out and get help. And to always remember that this is the land of the free because of the brave. Very good, sir. That's. I think that's a great way to end this. Uh, thank you very much, sir. Uh, thank you for your time. Really appreciate you sharing your story. And, and we are out. Thanks, Tanner. Take care. Thank you. Ever hear the one about the frog? Put a frog in a pot of boiling water and it'll jump right out. But put a frog in a pot of cool water and slowly heat it up and that frog will boil. It's a lie. But as a metaphor for us and all that we go through as veterans, it's a story that rings true. We make excuses for how we feel. We push everything down. We tell ourselves the lie that it's easier to stay in that boiling water, to disconnect. And some days, maybe, it is. But you've never been interested in easy. Reaching out is hard. Do it anyway. You're not alone. You've got this. You are not a frog. Find resources at va.gov slash reach. I want to thank the good general for coming on and sharing his very important story. To learn more about Major General Graham, you can find a bio on the U.S. Chamber Foundation's website 
at uschamberfoundation.org forward slash bio forward slash major hyphen general hyphen mark hyphen Graham. This week's Born the Battle Veteran of the Week is by way of VA's Veteran of the Day program. Every day, our social media team honors a veteran on all of our social media platforms and with a blog on blogs.va.gov. You can nominate the veteran in your life by emailing in a bio and about five pictures to newmedia at va.gov. This one in particular was sent in by Carrie the Load. Jeremiah Thomas Whitman was born in July of 1983 in Billings, Montana. In his adult life, he enjoyed dirt bike racing, hunting, action movies, and grilling outside. His favorite TV show was How I Met Your Mother. Whitman enlisted in the Army in 2004. He served two tours over a period of 15 months in Iraq before answering the call of duty in Afghanistan a year and a half later. He was assigned to the 1st Battalion, 12th Infantry Regiment, 4th Brigade Combat Team, 4th Infantry Division, based in Fort Carson, Colorado, to serve in Operation Enduring Freedom as a mortarman. Unfortunately, Whitman was killed in action in February of 2010 in the Zari province, Afghanistan, when enemy forces attacked his unit with an IED, which also killed two other soldiers. His service awards include a Bronze Star, a Purple Heart, a Good Conduct Medal, National Defense Service Medal, Afghanistan Campaign Ribbon with Campaign Star, and Iraq Campaign Medal with Campaign Star, Army Service Ribbon, two Overseas Service Ribbons, a NATO Medal, and a Combat Action Badge. February 2010, a funeral service was held for Whitman at Buck Creek Baptist Church in Genesee, South Carolina. His remains were interred in Yellowstone National Cemetery in August of 2018. And at the time of his passing, he was survived by his parents, his wife, two daughters, three sisters, one brother, a mother-in-law, and a father-in-law. Army veteran Jeremiah Whitman. We honor his service. Ready. Hey. Five. That's it for this week's episode. If you yourself would like to nominate a future Born the Battle veteran of the week so we can all learn their story, you can. Just send an email to podcast at va.gov, include a short write-up, and let us know why you'd like to see him or her as the Born the Battle veteran of the week. And if you like this podcast episode, hit the subscribe button. We're on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcast, iHeartRadio, pretty much any podcatching app known to phone, computer, tablet, or man. For more stories on veterans and veteran benefits, check out our website, blogs.va.gov, and follow the VA on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, RallyPoint, LinkedIn, DEPT Vet Affairs, U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. No matter the social media, you can always find us with that blue check mark. And as always, I'm reminded by people smarter than me to remind you that the Department of Veterans Affairs does not endorse or officially sanction any entities that may be discussed in this podcast, nor any media products or services they may provide. I say that because the song you're hearing now is called Machine Gunner, which is courtesy of the nonprofit Operation Song, and it was written by Marine veteran Mark McKillany, Nashville songwriter Jason Seaver, and Michael Duncan. Have a great day. Thank you for listening. And we'll see you right here next week. Take care. We gotta get them one way or the other. Machine gun. Firefight bullets fly day and night brain. Simplified till we die another campaign. My desk is a rock where the drug lords cut up millions. My pen is a 7.62 round that'll cut them down in an instant. Point 
When you golf, you know, you hit a tee shot and then you got to get to the green and putt. And, and you, it became a joke with my sons and I that I would always say, you know, the second shot's the most important. <laughs> you, know, you, you can hit a good drive, uh, but, you know, the next shot's the key one because no matter where you are now, you got to get the ball to the green. So second shot's the most important. So, I mean, no matter no matter what I would do when I hit a tee shot, almost oh, – typically many holes on the course when we were playing. And remember, I got to spend a lot of time with my sons, especially when we were Fort Sill and they were that age where they were playing golf and uh, and then and then later, but started mainly started at Fort Sill. But almost every time we'd hit a tee shot, you know, we'd walk up to the ball and one of them would look at me and say, you know, Dad, the second shot's the most important. So I think for me the key is to use that moving forward was, is, you know, you might do something, but what do you do next? What are sure. you doing next? Uh, and that's one of the things that, and I know I, I do is, is, you know, what am I doing next to help somebody else? What am I doing next to help someone to, to help make a difference in their life? And I think that's important is the second shot's the most important. What do you do next? <laughs> 